curiosity's always been my downfall. Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new. We are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Dan. I'm Stephen. And I'm Bridget. Hey. hey. Welcome back. We've got Bridget back in the hot seat. Hello, how are you? Good. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good to have you back, Bridget. Oh, it's good to have you back. <laughs> and we are doing uh, 1984's Caves of Androzani. Yeah, yeah, so it's the last story of Peter Davison and widely regarded as a classic. In yeah. fact, last time they did the, uh, the Doctor Who magazine poll, it came first. Um, That's crazy. Out of all the stories, classic and new. Yeah. Really? So it's a yeah. big favourite. Yeah, big favourite. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's a ringing endorsement. And it's a good regeneration story. It's a very weird one. It's not like the other ones. Uh, we'll get into it, yeah. I guess. But it's, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's rightly held up, I think. It's probably the, the best regeneration story of the classic era. Great writing. Amazing direction. Yeah, uh, Davison's weird and wonderful. We get it's Perry's first. It's her first full story as a companion. Yeah, after we get introduced to her in the last story, which was Planet of Fire, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Just disclaimer: there's a bit of mumbling in this one. My hearing's not so great, so that I, some of the, the um, words are just missed. They were like, "Doctor," I was like, "Oh man." Yeah, were we watching? We watched it together the other night. Were we watching like a, a VHS? I think it just might be like a really, really bad VHS route. Yeah. Well, like we've said before in previous New to Who's, some, with some of these stories, if you miss a line or two, you can you can lose the thread of the story for a long time. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah, you've really got to pay attention. And that sometimes the sound is bad. thread blows <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Sometimes>, away. <laughs> sometimes that sound isn't so great, but yeah, we'll soldier through. All right, so uh, let's have a look at our TARDIS team. It is Peter Davison as the fifth Doctor and the wonderful Nicola Bryant as Perry or Mm. Perpy Gilliam Brown, to give her her full name. Um, Bridget, what do you you make of Peter Davison? I reckon he's cool. Yeah. He reminds me of the guy from The Goodies. I like his haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Slice and blonde and happy and nice. That's Tim Brooke Taylor from The Goodies? Tim Brooke Taylor. I don't know why. They just do the same thing for me. You love Tim Brooke Taylor. I love The Goodies. They're so good. (laughs) Uh, Also, I I love Peter Davison. He's cool. Nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, You mentioned this last time when we did the What Did Bridget Think segment for Enlightenment. You were really positive about his character then as well. Yeah, I think he's a good one. Yeah, why so? I don't know. He's just nice. Yeah? Yeah, he... he, (laughs) He's inoffensive. <laughs> he's respectful. That, I like that. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. I, I keep saying that his his doctor is perhaps the most decent doctor, and that's the word yeah. that I would I would most that's readily the use. He's the, good, he's the good guy. Yeah, he really so. is, yeah. And and Nicola Bryant's Perry, what did you make of her? She's so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's so pretty. It's like, oh. Yeah, that's pretty much all. That is the first thing most people go to. Which is not great. That's the first thing I go to, but that's how she's written. And and her American accent? Yeah. I I couldn't tell if if she wasn't actually American. I was a bit confused by the accent in places. At the the start. But maybe, yeah, at the start. When she says glass. Is she American? (laughs) No, she's British Nicola Bryant. Yeah, Uh, very posh Surrey accent. Yeah, beautiful. Why why couldn't she keep her accent? Well, that may have been (laughs) down to our producer for this um, this story, uh, the infamous John Nathan Turner, (laughs) because... Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, we had the experiment of Tegan as the Australian uh, companion in the last couple of years, which worked really well mm. uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, Australian sales and whatever else. And here, I think J&T is trying to reproduce the same trick with the American audience. And this comes at a point in time where J&T is flying backwards and forwards between BBC Central and mm. American conventions in the States. 
um, raising the profile, um, you know, making a bit of money for the BBC in the, in the process as yeah. well. But, um, you know, really sort of upping the, the sales to the American market. Did which it work? It did to a degree, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because did they just go, man, that's a bad accent. I'm not into that. You know, sometimes when people do Australian accents in TV shows, you're just like, bah! That guy is so not Australian. Why not just like yeah. actually hire one of our people? <laughs> like, you know, I don't get it. Did it work? I never actually considered that. Well, I think if you look at sort of its continuing popularity, maybe it did. Whether that's independent of, of, of Nicola Bryant's American accent or not, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm sure it helped. I'm, I'm sure it probably did help. Because she's so pretty yeah and I, th- and I think she's actually a really good actress really? as well like she's very much uh, she's a great actress and um you know some of the the material that she's given here um sort of lets her show oh, yeah. in some ways uh although she does play the damsel in distress but i think yeah it's, it's a she's very much a competent actress i think she does it well she's very sympathetic and then you see you like flashes of her sympathy for really evil characters really nasty characters she plays it with a lot of art like when he finally shows her like um his disfigurement and she's just like ah! <laughs> <laughs> like that was really, was really compassionate there. but then she's like crawls, come on dude <laughs> doesn't she crawl to, like, you it's see just a, a burn <laughs> you see a minute of her crawl towards him just to make sure that she's alright before it cuts mm. I never noticed that before I, 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 I thought time. the acting was was very like kind of almost 30s 40s in, in a way because it was kind of that in that moment because it was so outrageous she was so shocked she was like yeah. theatrical was yeah. like I don't know, no. but she has that beauty, like one of those really old starlets. So yeah. that's true. Yeah. So you mentioned J and T, Dan, sure. as as our producer. Um, this is now, I think, his third uh, or fourth uh, season in in the role, mm. uh, and it continues uh, all the way through to 1989, to the end of the pro, uh, the yeah. classic program. I think he's hit his straps by now. I think he knows what he's, he's, you know, doing stuff well, and he's got he's working with our script editor. The uh, also infamous Eric Sayward. Eric Sayward, yeah. So, uh, well, well, we'll get onto this later <laughs> on, I guess. But uh, Eric Sayward, again, renowned for perhaps a, a gun approach to, mm. to Doctor Who, which we've said in the past is different to the frock approach. <laughs> uh, so this is this is not an Enlightenment story. This is mm. a kind of story. This is a much darker story. Enlightenment's a much lighter story. Lots of guns and shooting and death. It's yeah, very, very and it has a place in Doctor Who. There's no mm. doubt about that. But there's uh, maybe maybe we'll get into it later on. But there's certain lines that are that are transgressed at certain points <laughs> that make you wonder. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but this is such a good story, not least because of the director Graham Harper. Oh man, first time that he's actually uh, in really? the director's role, uh, and it's incredible. It's 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 almost like a quantum leap in the way in which Doctor Who is directed at the BBC during the classic years. Um, he's very much seen as you know the new school back then. Uh, very sort of dynamic. Um, he he actually directed from the floor, which was very rare back in uh, those days, rather than from the gallery. Ah, so they usually like directed from from the booth or something. Mm, yeah, exactly uh, right. Whereas he was on the floor and you know hands on action man. Exactly, and you know framing shots and whatever else. And and this, it comes across. I think this is such a, a fast paced story, um, not just in terms of the script but also the direction. There's just like so many um, great little flourishes and like amazing camera work and like there's all, like just little bits like there's that crossfade when it goes from Jack's face to Morgus's face <laughs> early on. Um, there's that crash zoom into the android and then like the little thing of um, the two hearts, the Doctor's two hearts kind of X-ray vision thing with the, yeah. the android. It was really cool. Yeah. Um, Let's put this out there. That guy must be stoked. He's number one in the <laughs> oh, polls. Yeah. Can you imagine? You'd be like, oh, sick. Yeah. <laughs> I would be anyway. I wish I could ask you, well, hey, dude, you're number one. How's it feel? You'd just be like, sick. Oh, it's part of the course. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I know I was the Naturally, best. darling. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, many, 
so many great it's just so many great shots and one of my favorite ones is right near the end when peter davison's when the doctors run down that hill and he's fallen on his back and he thinks he's finally caught by the two gunmen on the top of the hill and it's he's sort of in the right in the foreground upside down Mm. and he says sorry perry i can't make it Sorry, Perry. Like yeah, he finally thinks he's done. Oh, it's such a great shot. It's a great moment. It's a beautiful shot, and and, and Graham Harper is, is is asked back a couple more times in the classic series um, on the basis of this work. But not just that, he comes back for the new series in two thousand and five. So he directs some amazing episodes, not least Doomsday, which is the the last oh. episode of season two with mm. or series two with uh, Billy Piper's. Uh, sort of departure scene mm. that's that's wonderfully done but he also does um turn left and waters of mars um you know amongst others unicorn and the wasp so he's he's definitely um you know welcome back to the doctor who fraternity for the quality of the work that he I first s- displays here in caves of andrazani mm. uh so we've got a fabulous director and of course we've got an incredible writer in the in the guise of robert holmes far out classic is, is this guy the best writer for classic doctor who He's definitely up there. He's not perfect. He doesn't um, always treat women particularly well, if they're, if they're even in his scripts at all. Yeah, that's true. Um, there's usually not very many of them and he doesn't treat them very well. He, is, he was just such a steady hand that they often brought him back. I mean, brought him back for really big episodes or important things on, and regeneration episodes. They brought him back for, um, for this one, didn't they? Yeah, Robert Holmes has a huge history in Doctor Who. We have to go back to the 1960s with Patrick Troughton and his first script, um, The Crotons, mm. um, but then, you know, really sort of reinvents Doctor Who in many ways with Spearhead from Space, the first ah. John Pertwee story. So mm. there's another regeneration story that it you, comes in. You always say that's kind of a reboot, don't you? I think yeah. it is in many ways. It's, 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 it is definitely a reboot in the series. But also he's, he's brought back when, you know, for instance, um, you know, companions are introduced. So we have, you know, when Roman mm. is introduced with um, in, in the first episode of the Key to Time season, uh, the Ribos operation, mm. he's, he's, you know, he writes that and he's, he's, he's sort of... He's also the uh, the hand who sort of directs the the Hinchcliffe and Ho- uh, the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Obviously, sure. he's a script editor at that point as well. Yeah. So he's he's very much capable and very much a um, a, a giant in, in in Doctor Who. Great world builder. He's always like um, mm. there's always little hints here and there in, in his stories that sort of hint at a larger larger sort of scope of things yeah I think, I think he's great with that definitely we saw that when uh, Robots of Death when we did that a couple of months ago with J.R. Southall uh, okay cool so I guess we're going to start talking about the story now which means we are heading into I think it's spoiler territory right feels different this time is this death <laughs> all right and bam, we're in spoiler town. And it seems not a moment too soon. <laughs> Steve, if you were going to sum up this episode in an impossibly beautiful way, which way would you do this? Oh, well, I'll give it a go, but it's on a small planetoid in the distant future, the dregs of humanity's descendants sordidly battle over the secret of the elixir of eternal youth. So nasty and horrible is the entire situation that it comes to claim the life of everyone involved, including the self-sacrifice of the kindest hero in all the universe for the sake of his best friend. Oh, I think that's the best one you've ever done. That's pretty great. Uh, You're a poet. I mean, this is a story that is incredibly dramatic and exciting, but it also has at its core this idea that, um, you know, two friends looking after one another, mm. the Doctor not wanting to let Perry down, and that's that's really why the the story uh, turns out the way that it does. There's just so many bad people trying to do bad things to each other, and they're sort of caught in the middle of it. Mm. Not only are they um, trying to get through it, but he's trying to save Perry. Yeah. he's so It's kind of like the Doctor throughout this story is just trying to be good. And he's trying to do good and he's trying to help his friend 
and they're just sort of making their way through this nightmare of horrible <laughs> people doing horrible things to each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They really are all so evil, those villains. Yeah, there aren't any uh there really aren't any good guys in the story, right? No, Except it's just for the, the Doctor, Doctor and Perry, yeah. I mean Shellac I mean you've got Shellac played by um Martin Cochran and he's kind of almost a good guy. You know, he's doing he's following his awful orders to do things that he thinks fits for the common good. It's a it's a, yeah. a war. Um which is pretty unusual for Doctor Who. This is one of the things that makes the story um strange to me and, and great. Yeah. And I think they could have had a little bit more humanity because otherwise it's just boring. Like, you know, you need to feel empathy for the bad guy, kind of. Well, And so it kind of happened at the end where we were like, oh, he's disfigured, oh, mm. but then... It's hard to feel empathy for know. our main villain, Shara's Jack, played amazingly by Christopher, Christopher Gable. He's so creepy and... He yeah. is, yeah. Rapey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so he rapey. is, absolutely. Like... You recoil. He did it so well. He is so, so, so good. And that costume was so good. Yeah. Yeah, that mask. I mean, it's very, um, it's very Phantom of the Opera, obviously. Yeah, I think that's a very clear parallel to, to in this story for sure. And his, um, his like all leather, all pleather costume, very creepy. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, it, I mean, I feel like you're meant to feel a little empathy for him, but he's just so. I mean, if it wasn't for the very, very gross way he treats Perry. Um, he might be moved to feel a little empathy for him, but that stuff just kind of wipes the wipes his goodness, wipes his slate clean because he's just so. He's been so badly wronged by that general dude. Uh, that you think like, oh, Morgus, played by uh, John Normington, amazingly. Mm, what a voice uh, as wow. well. What a ponytail. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess he's been so badly wronged by Morgus that you you want to feel bad for him, but he um just is so he's immediately creepy to Perry, um, which is something that happens to her throughout her run as Perry. In Doctor Who, she's often people. You know, lots of people have said that she's treated terribly. She's she's man. She's very manhandled, especially in this story. She's like so pretty. Well, that's but, that's no and excuse. Also, like, that's no excuse for like you know she's always like kind of an object of desire. Someone yeah. to be. But she's a bit wet. Do you know how like her her fate is sealed and it's like oh she's going to be shot by the firing squad mm. and she was like oh it's not your fault it's okay that kind of sentiment like. I felt like she was a bit shell shocked. You know. Oh. <laughs> that's the male perspective oh, sure? uh, I would have been like What the hell You get me out of this doctor Aren't you some kind of super creature What the hell Just like Tartus us out of here Don't, What are you doing I'm not going to die right now But she's just like It's okay You she's did your best I'll be like What <laughs> I think it's unfortunate The way in which Perry Is sort of manhandled In, in this particular sure. story It's the first time That we see it uh, And it's you know Quite alarming uh, and I don't know if it's the, the wisest of choices, but I think what's really unfortunate is that it seems to act as a precedent to what you know Perry should be subjected to in terms of the, the perils of the companion, mm. especially going into season 22 mm. um, with the sixth Doctor. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure how, how that sits with me, but I think... Terribly. Yeah, I mean... It's a terrible choice. We've mentioned this before, yeah. right? but you know, it's, it's something that I, d- I don't like to see. I mean, rape culture in Doctor Who, I don't mm. think it has a place for it. And in many ways, I think Caves of Androzani, one of the, the, the nasty side effects is that it serves as a precedent um, to that kind of uh, story for, for Perry. Because it's hinted, I mean, it's pretty strongly hinted at that that's what Jack, Jack wants. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think he wants to sit her on a pedestal and look at her. You know, yeah. he wants to, yeah. And it's, it's, I don't think it really has a place in, in Doctor Who. No, it doesn't it's, because like... As it's we, a kid's show, man. I mean, it, exactly, it's Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you know, we, 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 if 
I don't know if we want to get into this, but you know the, the, the Perry character arc sort of ultimately pays off in season twenty three, in when when she's basically her body is taken over by a gross old fat man, man. Who's, who's you know lusting after her, and that's just like yeah, the horrific gross. culmination of an incredibly ill advised, and I think probably like the the most heinous creative decision and and choice that they made during the twenty first twenty six years of Doctor Who. Um, and it starts here, and I, I don't know how it's. I don't know. I don't. I don't they, like that. They even kind of sort of victim blamer a little bit. Like Chelak is uh, when they when, when they get back with Chelak, and he sort of says to Perry, "Look, I'd, even if this wasn't happening, I'd still have you. I'd have you shot anyway for treating with the enemy." And I was so mad. I was like, I just wanted Perry to say. It's not my fault. How is that my fault that he wants to the check his imprisoned me and he wants to do horrible things? It's not my fault. That's like, a it's good point. Really yeah. bad. I thought that was terrible. Um, I just want to go back to Shara's check and mm. the point that you guys were making is quite valid. With respect to Shara's check, I think mm. the points that you guys were making earlier were quite valid. I think that there's a great deal of creepiness about the character and mm. he's definitely you know the main villain of the piece. But I think there's also uh, you know a motivation or some sort of interiority about the character as well that really um, gives him added depth and, 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 and sort of flavour to the character. Visually, Dan, you said, like, obviously he looks like the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's accidental, no. but to me, I think it goes even further back. I, I think probably to, to Mephistopheles in Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Oh, sure. Which, if you go back in time, is probably the first time that we have a villainous character on stage and a character in the sense that he has a motivation, that there is some sort of backstory here rather mm. than just a, a pantomime villain, if you like. And mm. the thing that, that sort of made me think that was actually a line that Sharaz Jack says. He says, To think that I, Sharaz Jack, yeah. who once mixed with the highest in the land, am now dependent on the very dregs <laughs> of society, the base perverted scum who contaminate everything they touch. <laughs> so great. <laughs> it is such a great line, but it also. Um, reflects and sort of echoes for me a few lines from Mephistopheles in Dr. Faustus and it's when uh, Mephistopheles is talking to, um, to, to Faustus and he says thinkest thou that I who saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven am not tormented with 10,000 hells and being deprived of everlasting bliss <laughs> there you go and I think there's a parallel there not just in terms of the character but even in the dialogue there too so yeah I mean it's it's someone that I don't know if you ever feel sympathy to him, but you certainly feel him. He's a pathetic character, someone that is you know mm. quite poor bastard sort of thing. I feel bad for him just because like that outfit is made of plastic, right? <laughs> and if you're burnt, you know how like if you've oh, got a sticks. scab and you have a band aid on it, and then when you rip that band aid off after the end of the day, Ooh. and there's a little sweaty under there and raw. Yeah. That's his whole body, and dude. It, and it seems like he's it's wrapped pretty... in plastic. <laughs> and he's like, what, what's that about? It he seems was... like it's, it's pretty hot down there as well, right? All those mud bursts and things like sure, that. Pretty, yeah. It must be pretty sweaty under there. He's literally turning to soup under there. It's not going to help. And he can still be so eloquent, man. <laughs> Maybe that's why um, when Chelak sees his uh, face, he freaks out so much and it actually causes his death. Because he's just, not only is he burned, but he's horribly sweaty under there. It's <laughs> smelly, the smell. Oh, the smell. Oh, Maybe the it, smell was the smell. it was the smell that made her scream. Maybe oh, it was the dear smell. Lord. <laughs> uh, and he's just so well played by Christopher Gable. Uh, and he Gable, really is. who was actually uh, a professional dancer as well, he, <laughs> um, after um, acting, he went on to run a bunch of different dance schools. And he actually got uh, commander of the British Empire wow. for, for his services to British dance. Wow. Amazing. That's fantastic. So eloquent. Yeah, very eloquent. So sweaty. Yeah. And Jack, yeah, the, one of the funniest things, about, my favorite things about Jack is at the start when he meets the Doctor and Perry, 
he's like he, he's pretty turbo like he goes from we're gonna be best buddies you and me are gonna be best buddies <laughs> to if i if i don't break you i'll kill you in like in 10 <laughs> seconds he's like he tries to be nice for about 10 seconds and then he's just like uh yeah i'm gonna be gross to perry and kill the doctor <laughs> pretty messed up it's not for no reason that the story is called the caves of andrasani uh shara's jack being that Androzani, which is a Greek, if you like, translation for Andros or man and Zani, mm. the crazy man. So this is this is the caves oh of the crazy man. This is what oh. the story is. Oh my god! Whoa, cool. <laughs> that's deep. That makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, I think that's Robert Holmes trying to well, actually succeeding in being really clever. And yeah, I always appreciated that title in, in light of the fact mm. that Shara's Jack is that that madman. He's definitely the madman in the cave. Mm-hmm. He even says, yeah, that's right. He even says, he says to Barry, do you think I'm mad? And she's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, he's just, this delivery is so great. He's just like, I am mad. <laughs> like, I so, am mad. I'm so sweaty. <laughs> that was so good. I love that part. Um, so we talked about uh, Chelak's death or before we even started talking really about Chelak. He doesn't have a huge role. But. No, is, is he channeling Nicholas Courtney's brigadier here? Oh, it's the Mo, right? <laughs> but also that sort of languid style. We see him in like in episode one sort of draped over that computer bank as he's talking to to the Doctor and Perry who yeah. are, you know, basically, you know, he's, he's convicted them of, of being gun runners and about to be executed. It's mm. just like, oh, yeah, I'll have a chat with you. And he's got a real problem with not looking at people when he's talking to them. <laughs> he's doing that old theatrical sort of like, they do a lot of those shots where... <laughs> Off into the mid-distance. Yeah, he's like, what are you looking at, Jellac? Like, he's always <laughs> looking at something. And um, But, you know, it's just that thing where they frame it and both people are sort of with their faces to the camera. It, kind of, it reminds me of like daytime soaps. Bit of, bit of Days of Our Lives. Days of Our Lives, yeah. Yeah, maybe that was the filmic convention of the time. And that's obviously, you know, Graham Hart directed them there sure. but he does look like he's you know a matinee idol from the 1930s just sort of staring off into, yeah, his, his into face is even lit like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've just got that cellotine in the background going what are you looking at <laughs> he does it a lot of people do it but i think um, martin cochran and chelak are the guiltiest of, uh, of doing that stuff i kept being like what are you looking at <laughs> turn around <laughs> he never looks at cellotine when he talks to him maybe he just uh, he just loathes cellotine maybe he just hates people under him even His job sucks. Let's put that out there. Yeah. He just re- reports to that crazy general guy. Yeah, God. I mean, he, he um, and he, yeah, he follows these orders. Obviously, he's not. He doesn't want to kill the doctor like, and Perry. My bus sucks. <laughs> Everyone is a robot. Like, ugh, I don't know. Oh yeah, and he doesn't even. He feels he's so embarrassed that he doesn't realize that there's, there's cameras all over his operation from the start, and then he finds out that his number two, his number one, is a robot. <laughs> so embarrassing! Oh my god! So embarrassing! Yeah. And, and Major Salatine is played by Robert Glenister, yeah. uh, who is the brother of Philip Glenister, who plays what Gene Hunt in uh, Life on Mars. Oh my god! And Ashes oh, to Ashes. That is a great character. Oh wow! So that's his brother. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, his brother. I love that guy. Uh, so good. Um, and you I remember when Celatine comes on and starts acting immediately? What did you say? He's like, this, this dude's got a degree in theater sports. Because <laughs> he's just so weird when he started. So weird and over the top. But obviously, you find out you find out so pretty quickly that he's actually a an android r- replacement for the well, real. That makes more sense. Yeah. In hindsight. <laughs> I guess that I was like this actor is so bad. <laughs> I guess some, um, but he's a really good robot, so his acting is excellent. I guess Sharon's <laughs> Jack is just lucky that the android is meant to impersonate a wooden dude, a very wooden dude. <laughs> yeah. He's got he's a real close talker, and he's got that creepy stare. He's a real close talker. He, yeah, he's always leaning over um Chelek's shoulder. Another okay. reason why it's just so embarrassing not to have realised. Yeah, well, he's number the- two. Is a terrible ham. You just like go, oh, he's a bit weird, but okay. Well, he doesn't notice. Well, Chalik doesn't notice because he never looks at Celatine. He's yeah, always right. looking at the he's distance. He's always looking staring into the distance. Into the distance. <laughs> 
But he's also so competent. He's more competent than Chelak, which is really good. And this is Bob Holmes having a bit of fun again. He always has yeah. these, they call these Holmesian double acts where uh, characters will be partnered up with one another. And obviously we have uh, General Chelak and Major Salatine on one side where you know the subordinate is far more confident than, than the, the, um, the leader. But we also have it with uh, uh, Morgus and, and Crow Timon where you know, we have the, the leader of the, the serious conglomerate and his you know, supposed secretary when in fact she's the, the one who's uh, um, basically yeah. <laughs> the, you know, going to take over the organisation in the end. It's, it's great to see that. Mm. And again, with Stotts and Kelper who are, uh, Kelper, who are another double act, yeah. um, those nasty gun runners where you know, Stotts is, is someone who you know, really sort of streetwise and canny and, and all the rest of it. And Krupp was just an idiot. Yeah. Um, Dan, a quote from you as we were watching it. <laughs> you, you shouted out at the television at one point, you're not worth your money, Krupper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. He's such a dolt. He is terrible. Um, and he just, but he's just so, I love Krupp. Um, I love how, how much pleasure he seems to take in ribbing people. It's just like, you're gonna, he's going to turn around and beat you up, man. He's the boss. Stotts is so competent. Yeah, he doesn't really screw up at all. And but he's a terrible businessman. I mean, he's <laughs> trying to extract payment for something that he hasn't delivered. Uh, that's not how it works, man. Well, does that make him a good businessman? Oh god, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Doesn't understand. <laughs> Starts you're a terrible businessman. But uh, just back to um, Celatine and um, and Chelak. I love, I love. Uh, Chelak just seemed kind of a little bit upper class, and I love when the, the doctor is trying to get kind of when they've met, and you know he's going to be. The doctor and Perry are dismissed, and they're, they're going to be um, executed. The doctor's trying to get through to Chelak, and the mm. way, he, the, way he, the only time he actually gets up in his grill is when he um, he seems to like insinuate that Chelak made it to where he is by coming up through the ranks. Mm, coming yeah. up through the, and Chelak is like, "What?" <laughs> he, sees, he does a double take. He's, he's so insulted by that proposition. I love that. Yeah, I, I love that they seem a little bit incompetent because they're, you know, almost like aristocratic classes who go into into the army. It's like yeah. they've been given an officer's role without having to actually go through the ranks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just, <clears throat> I, I just love how obvious, like, sort of Chelak and Celatine seem to hate their jobs, but um, mm-hmm. Stotts and the uh, the gun runners just, they just love what they do, man. Like Stotts <laughs> is having the best time. He's having a great time. They love what they do, but they don't love each other. They no, shoot, they certainly stabbing don't. each other in the back. Yeah, there's no honour amongst thieves in you know, between Stotts and Krelpop, or in fact, indeed, between any of the characters. And you know, we said before, there isn't a sympathetic character, or at least a, a heroic character outside the, you know, the TARDIS team. You know, they're all scumbags, and they're all backstabbing one another. Yeah. Yeah, Stotts. Like I love Stotts right up until right up until near the end when he when he when he, he separates from Krelpop, and they say, "Well, we're not coming," and they they split up. And he walks walks out, and then he. I just don't remember seeing this when I was a kid. Maybe it was cut. <laughs> it must have been by the Australian censors. But man, he walked when he walks back in and just mows them down. It was nasty. And there's another thing like mm. it's a very sayward thing to have all these all this gunfighting and shooting, which I'm, I don't love. But um, the fact that instead of using a laser gun, laser guns, you know, like futuristic laser guns, they just have straight up Uzis with yeah. bits attached. Yeah. Uh, and so when he comes back in and just fires on them, it's. The fact that they use that one of those guns instead of laser guns makes it so much nastier and more real. It's so true, Dan. And in fact, I think this isn't an example where maybe the Saywood and Holmes partnership in the, on the writing side doesn't quite work. I think when you had Holmes and Hinchcliffe, Hinchcliffe was the one who was reining Holmes in. And you know, when Terence Sticks was the script editor and Holmes was writing 
Dix would have been the one who was like, no, you can't go that far, Bob. We need to cut it because mm. it's a kid's program. It's for the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. With Saywards, it's like, let's keep that in. Go yeah, for it. Sure, why not? And I think what happens is that the, the sort of tone tips over the edge. You know, this is a story where the doctor dies. And in that regard, it's not going to be a, a happy ending in, mm. in many ways. But the way in which we get to, the, to that end point is sort of you know headlong rush into into the abject and the despair, mm. and and that scene which you're right it was cut by the Australian censors. I don't remember it. But no, it definitely wasn't on that 4:30 a.m. repeats back in the early <laughs> 90s because I had that tape for a long time. Ah. And when I saw that on the DVD um, a few years ago, I was shocked. It was like, oh my god. Mm. Uh, but again, there's another example. It's unnecessary. But at the same time, it does really sort of set that very dark and grim mm. um, atmosphere to to the piece. And it seems to fit Stotts, and he he even worse, he like he chuckles afterwards, doesn't yeah. he? Laugh, oh yeah. man, such a scumbag. Uh, jokes on him. When they get back to the ship, they're gonna have to clean that up before they can. T- well, not before they take oh, off. Yeah. <laughs> or they're gonna have to fly out with a bunch of blood and corpses everywhere if they get back. Which well, of course they don't. That was his intent, I guess. <laughs> should we go? Should we get onto the real the real evil behind the throne? Let's um, Morgus, yeah, John Normington, man, isn't he great? Oh wow, that forehead, Oof. wow, he's great. He's that so, ponytail, yeah, he's so calm and like he's so calm and cold, um, or throughout. Even when he gets flustered, he doesn't really lose his cool at the end. Um, when he gets uh, taken, when his, he loses everything to the amazing Crow Timon, <laughs> she's his secretary throughout, and um, she's sort of, you're never really sure if she's in on it, like if she agrees with what he does or if she knows all this stuff, but then at the end, she just swoops down and... Yeah, like, like Salatin, she's the far more competent mm. uh, member of that duo, um, and she sweeps in, as you say, at the end and takes over so the, the organisation and basically condemns Morgus to a life of, uh, if not prison, if he's ever caught, then you know certainly one of just you know continual flight from the authorities. Which is uh, a, a just dessert, I think, for someone who's so villainous. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, I mean, he's just stripped of everything. So evil. So, so, so evil. Even to the point, I was surprised that he actually killed the president himself with his own <laughs> hands. Uh, that was amazing. And they just pushed him in a pushed him into an elevator. Always look before you step into an elevator, man. <laughs> You'd think. You don't get to president by, by walking into elevators without looking. Yeah, it seems to sort of be like a, a continuing sort of escalation of things where, you know, he, he's, he's responsible for the uh, shutting down of the, the North Coal uh, copper mine mm. through the explosion. He's the one who arranges that, mm. you know, obviously killing the president as well. It's just like a, a sort of continuing series of escalating, you know, dastardly deeds mm. to sort of illustrate just how, you know, absolutely corrupt this this character is. And of course, in the end, he gets his comeuppance. Yeah, yeah, big time. And then you, you find out later that he's responsible. He's not only is he responsible for all this horrible stuff, but he's directly responsible for Jack's disfigurement, which mm. is, um, ties it all together. Yeah. Crime don't pay, dudes. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't pay. But uh, uh, that's so we were talking about the president before, uh, played by David Neal with Impossible Cool. Yeah, I mean, he's not in it very much, but obviously the the impression that I get from the interplay between the two characters is that the president's on to August. Mm. It's yeah. just a matter of time. Yeah. And it's I, just too evil. It's like, ah, the guy who runs this is just evil. Yeah, you get the like, sense that he's, yeah. a, he's a necessary evil that the president's got to deal with to get, get things done. But yeah. still not necessarily a good guy. No, I don't think so either. I think it's out of self-interest. I mean, um, he talks about uh, suing for peace with, with um, Shara's Jack in order to uh, secure the supply of Spectrox for the rest of Androzani Major, which obviously would mean that... Um, uh, Morgus's uh, stranglehold yeah. and monopoly on that would be broken. 
And that's what tips him over the edge. That's what uh, means that in the end, the president has to die. Yeah, he's got to go. I love their double act when they're talking to each other across that table. It's so They're both so smug and <laughs> he's, the president's so sort of smarmy and Morgus is just so cold. They're great together. And is this Bob Holmes being a little bit cynical again where he's, you know, he talks about people in authority or people mm. in great power and you know, very rich people who are essentially <laughs> as, just as bad as Stotts and, and Krelper even? Sure. <laughs> the CEOs of the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's real. And there's that wonderful scene, I think, in is episode three or four, where um, Morgus arrives on Andrasani Minor and says, uh, you know, and it's obviously Stotts is shocked that he sees, you know, Morgus there. Oh, yeah. And he goes, do you think perhaps that you recognize me? And it's like, no, no. That's <laughs> <laughs> really good. Yeah, they're all, they're all in the same boat, whether it's a CEO or a gun running, you know, scumbag like Stotts, they're, uh, they're all in the same boat. Chasing money. Mm. Yeah, well, that's all. He's, all it's all that Morgus has at the end is the the Spectrox that he thinks Jack has, and so he, you know, he's it's a dub, another double act with him and Stotts, which I really love. Yeah, that's right. They they pair up at the end there, don't they? <laughs> I love how Stotts sits down and takes his time to explain that it's going to be fifty fifty. It's so <laughs> great. He's just he just loves it. He's having a great time. Yeah. Yeah, money does destroy destroy you, but friendship is eternal. Yeah. And that's what you should be going for. Moral of the story. It is, though. Yeah. Morgus and Stotts should have been best buddies, you reckon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good double team. I've watched that spin-off. Oh, Big finish, are you listening? <laughs> well, I think we've covered pretty much all of the cast except for the one... Elephant in the room, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, hapless magma creature. Oh, jeez, the magma beast. Why do they do the it? The monster. It's just like an extra bit that they didn't oh, really yeah. need. That was completely irrelevant, <laughs> but I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, definitely. I was like, that is so bad. <laughs> and Dan was like, why do they do a full length shot of it? Yeah, that's like definitely. Like, it's definitely oh, one of those things. The dude in a suit. To show to the, one of those rules that you never show the whole monster, or you make it a bit shadowy, or. Blur it out. Because you can just see the strings attached, right? Yeah, or that weird, like, um, carapace, which is just a cape. It's just terrible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved it, uh, but uh, I love how they just sort of unload bullets at it to no effect, and they're still shooting it at, at it at the end. And... Do you know what I would have liked, though? And this is just because I'm weird, but I wanted to see him milk a bat. Oh. I wanted that close-up shot of his fingers on the on the little. Like, <laughs> I was just like, "Wow, oh, he's gonna milk a bat!" I was like so excited. Oh, because we see the like, cuts away just you see before. The, yeah. Well, he leans in. He even leans in with his with his pinchy <laughs> fingers. Like, <gasps> I know. I couldn't <laughs> remember. What does a bat look like? And then yeah. nah. <laughs> oh, the bat milking! Oh my god, we've got to get we've got to talk about the bat milking. Oh, the bat milking! It's great because you know they best part of the story. I love like, when he's going to be milk a bat now. <laughs> how's he going to find one in such a short amount of time? Like, how does he just know where those bats are? I love that. Well, because Celatine tells him. I love early on when Celatine is he's just so horrible. Oh, and he, the real Celatine, the real, yes, is laughing when he finds out they have spectroxtoxemia, and he's he's like, "There's no cure." And then they're like, "All right, what, what are we going to do?" And he's like, "Oh, well, you could get the the bat milk." And it's like, you just said well, there was no cure. What the hell are you doing? Celestine, we're dying, man. Help me out. And then you know that when he mentions the milk of a queen bat at the start, you know that because they're mentioning it, it's going to come up later, right? It's like, it's Chekhov's bat milk, man. It's totally going to happen. It definitely is. But, I, another quote from Dan as we were watching that scene. <laughs> Celestine, what an asshole. <laughs> But it's true, like he's, again, like he's someone who, on the face of it, probably could be and should be a, a sympathetic character, but, um, you know, 
in the way that he's sort of, um, I think it's been months where he's, he's been sort of... Hold up with Hold Madden. up with, which would be tough. But I think there's an element of Stockholm Syndrome going on because... He's jealous. He is a bit, or at least frightened for his life. He says that, you know, with the Doctor and Perry here, now he no longer needs oh. Salatine and so he's just going to kill him. So he takes great delight when obviously he learns that they've both contracted Spectrox toxemia mm. and are going to die. And supposedly there's no cure for it because it means that he'll be able to continue living. I yeah. think there's a bit of Stockholm going on yeah, there. Yeah, I think so. Is he living really? Is that <sighs> life? Hanging out with it's, that weird vinyl yeah. dude? And a bunch of robots. Like, yeah. Is it life? Um, I don't know. His, his sort of motivation. He slowly mad. Mm, <laughs> yeah, you would, definitely. Which is what's yeah. happened, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, no, I can live. Yeah, it is a mad <laughs> oh, laugh, isn't shit, it? No. And he, like, but then, so he does seem like he's a bit jealous and he's got Stockholm Syndrome, but then he's kind of turned around and gone back to Chelak and now he's sort of working for Chelak. Yeah, uh, at the top. So yeah, I don't know. Could he have left at any time? No, because the androids were guarding the exit. Oh, of course, yeah. And they kill all humans, mm. but not time lords. Oh yeah, that great <laughs> shot with the the weird that weird sort of fake X ray effect they've got going on. So they must have had like Davison must have been standing there with like sort of I don't know like a painting of or just some blobs to make make it look like hearts on the on the front of his outfit. Maybe or whether it was a visual effect, I'm not sure. But what it definitely is is Robert Holmes going back to his source material in Spearhead from Space. He has the uh, the scene where mm. the the doctor's X-rayed in the hospital and it oh, shows yeah. two hearts and it's just a, a throwback to that. Are I they guess. beating as well in the shot? Well, I think they are, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just imagining, yeah, Davison standing in his studio with like weird blobby beating hearts in front of his chest. It's great. Yeah, but the bat milking, I can't believe, I just, I couldn't remember because I haven't seen it for so long if you actually see it. I just imagine this hilarious little pinchy fingers just sort of <laughs> cook because it doesn't get very much, right? It's only a got pretty a, big bat. It's a big old bat. That's a really big bat. It's the queen bat. Right? right? <laughs> like, that's a human-sized bat. Yeah. They're, they're a strange thing. Like, um, Celatine says they've gone, all gone down into the depths to die. I'm not sure what it is. It must be something to do with the life cycle and, you know, the yeah. whole Androzani minor thing is the is cyclical pattern around the mud bursts and whatever else. So maybe they know that it's, the, it's it coming to the end of their life cycle. something to do with um, one planet going closer to another, isn't it? And that makes the mud bursts happen. Yeah, That's yeah. Really cool. So kind of like the moon's sort of tidal pull on, on the waters of the Earth. The same thing for the mud yeah. on Andrews. Or like um, Io around Jupiter, how this all the volcanic activity. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a bit of, bit of crap science there. Yeah, I love Great that. Great for science. <laughs> Great to see. Um, we just didn't get, didn't get to see the, the science of bat milking, but never mind. Well, yeah, it's probably a good thing because, I mean, <laughs> I don't think... It's creepy and weird. It is yeah. creepy and weird, but it's also <laughs> not the greatest of props. And, you know, the fact that it's on screen for a couple of seconds is probably just long enough, unlike the Magna Beast. In both instances, and in other instances in classic Doctor Who where they have these props that look a bit crap, I just think if only, not just, you know, shooting it from low or close tight, tight angles or whatever, but just, like, put a whole bunch of Vaseline on it or, you mm. know, have some sort of, like, gel on the teeth to make it look just, like slobber. Just show oh. the teeth would, or the hand. Don't would, shoot it and just put sound. <laughs> and then it's yeah. like... Your imagination fills it in? I think you're right, Bridget. I mean, everyone yeah. keeps saying that if you take the Magma Beast out of this story, it's an absolutely flawless story. Mm. And that's probably the right... Yeah, it's probably right, actually. Mm. I like how they just sort of kill the Magma Beast at the end without really explaining how it yeah. died. I assume it's the mud burst or something like that. It must be. I'm not sure. Maybe it's something they can't... Why couldn't it have been the bat? As well, like, why did it have to be a magma beast? Why yeah. couldn't it just be just like giant creepy bats? Yeah, that would have been great. That would have tied it to the queen bats. That yeah. would have made sense. That yeah. would have made sense. It's like, what? This is another a villain? Just too many <laughs> villains doing so. I don't care about any of them. They're all too evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that dead magma creature at the end. And he just says, it's not your day. Does he say it's not your day either? Yeah. That's oh, really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
There's actually one more character you guys didn't mention. Another Another elephant in the room. Go on. Isn't it the new Doctor? That Colin Baker guy? (laughs) Uh, That is real. Oh, yeah, because you... That is real. (laughs) Because you've never seen uh, Colin Baker in action, so he was truly a surprise to you. Why did they give him that outfit? Like, there's so many questions. Sweet dogs, after after we finished watching, we did show Bridget some um, Colin Baker photos just to show the outfit. The coat, yeah. yeah. We'll have to talk about that. Another time, I guess. To be continued. <laughs> but My mind is literally blown, hey? Oh, great actor. Great actor given short shrift. I think. Oh, and so then we ways. started to feel bad for him. I was giving more backstory about Colin Baker and how he got like the worst scripts and how he got the worst direction and he got, got the worst axed. of everything yeah. and then he got axed. Yeah, and it wasn't his fault and it wasn't Nicola Bryant's fault either. No one sure. wants to be the worst Doctor Who. Oh, yeah, I yeah. know. It's so bad. But then apparently he was the best. Uh, the big finish on the audio, yeah. The best yeah. audio yeah. doctor or something. Best like audio that. doctor. Yeah, which just goes to show, I think, you know, the the importance of the creative direction and vision by the the production team and the way that they take the Doctor forward. I mean, this is going off topic, I guess, but, you know, the, the coat is such a big mistake and you can't see past it, I think, and that's that's just like one of many things that means that mm. I don't think poor Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant as well had the chance to become the Doctor mm. and companion team that they should have been. Because yeah. Perry, like this bits with... with um, with Perry, I've always, I've always, I always like the bits at the starts of stories where they're just sort of walking around, hanging out, having fun before mm. the bad stuff starts. Sure. And the one in this is really nice when they're walking around on the sort of the desert area yeah. in the quarry. Which, um, oh, actually, yeah, this is the quarry of the month club. Run, Doctor! Um, well, this time <laughs> in this story, we are dealing with uh, Master's Pit in Dorset. <laughs> and what a what a marvelous alien landscape it is! Oh, with those great map paintings, I did really like those. Oh right. So, do you want to explain how this works? Where they they, they sort of superimpose, you know, the, obviously the shot footage with the without sort of the green hills of Dorset in the background. They've sort of superimposed a glass, a beautiful glass painting of an alien landscape, mm. and you can see. You can see the well the, on the copy that we had. You can see the sort of wobbling at the seams because the camera's outside and it's obviously <laughs> being buffeted by wind or something. It's really funny. Yeah. I love that. Um, but yeah, I love the bits at the starts of these stories and 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 the one with um, Davison and Perry just hanging out having a chat was really nice. It's just the same thing with her and Colin Baker. Whenever they get the chance to do that, it's really lovely. Yeah. She, yeah, I think it would have been good. Yeah. Wasn't it like at the beginning? I don't know if I can remember correctly. But like he's all just like, oh, let's go down here, and she's like, nah, and then, <laughs> then she finds herself like facing sudden death. Yeah. Like. Oh yeah, she tumbles <laughs> off into it, and they both fall into a spectrox nest, which and is what, which is die. what, yeah, yeah. I so it's like, they, oh man, they're both doomed from within the first five minutes of the story, and it's such an innocuous thing. They just fall into a little sticky spiderweb thing, and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. oh well, <laughs> never mind, and they just dust themselves. Up. Oh, lucky we fell on that, and not a sharp rock. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, and so they're they're sort of dying the whole story, which I is so weird, and I quite like. I think it's it's again it's an it's a regeneration story. It's a story where a doctor dies, and we have this sort of spiral descent into into a maelstrom right from the beginning. And it seems innocuous, but of course it's not. Mm. It actually is the thing that kills them. And later, you know, we have you know all sorts of things going on with the androids and Jack and the uh, Morgus and the rest of it, and the mud bursts. But it's just that sort of foreshadowing that this isn't going to turn out well. This isn't going to have a happy ending. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter because if you don't have your health, then yeah, you don't have the anything. End. Yeah, you really don't. <laughs> Even if you're a timeline, you don't have friends. 
And your health. <laughs> what do you have, really? That's what you took away from the story? Yeah, money means nothing. Sure, that's right. It's good. <laughs> I don't have it. And drugs. <laughs> drugs are bad. Well, actually, Spectrox never really drugs? gets a bad... A bad like, tr- Spectrox is just is fine. They don't really talk about Spectrox too much apart from its value. But it prolongs people's lives. By yeah. So it's sort of like a fountain of youth and an elixir of life, like of eternal youth, which is interesting. Spice melange type deal. Exactly. From yeah. June. So Frank Herbert's June series, the, the spice melange, as you say, is the, the life extending force and other things as well. From a desert planet. From a desert planet, indeed, which is sort of, which comes from a sort of, uh, well, in this case, Spectrox comes from the, the droppings of, of the bats. Oh, oh which is whoa. Re- which is then refined into the, uh, the, you know, the life preserving. I must have missed that part so it's just like processed guano yeah <laughs> man those bats are amazing which isn't too different from spice melange in, oh, sh- uh, in june as well sure just like want to go deeper into how it, if you did have a fountain of youth how that would change society mm. it's like how it would change your your beauty ideals and it would be like yeah everyone's young and beautiful now hmm. yeah youth whatever <laughs> age is hot <laughs> <laughs> oh so you're into the president yeah he's yeah, pretty yeah, handsome cool, he had you, good yeah. hair yeah. <laughs> yeah, good hair, thinning, oh, sexy. Mm. You know, like that's what I think. Well, he's that's obviously says. he obviously hasn't reached retirement age. I don't know what retirement age is in a Spectrox field society, but he's obviously not there well, yet. There wouldn't be one, right? No, that's know. right. Yeah. yeah, you just keep going. Well, I think it, right. he said something like doubling it, double up to double the human lifespan. I think so. There must mm. be an end. But okay, yeah, those, yeah. Those bats aren't magic. <laughs> um, I think double would be cool, but I think triple would be too long. Sure. I think your life, 80 years-ish, say, right? right if 80 you're lucky. Years, like, <laughs> that's okay. I think maybe you want a little bit more. Sure, 160, that's enough for you, is it? I reckon that's right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's the word from Bridget. 160 <laughs> years is... Uh, I could get ultimate. really good at music in 160 years. Ah, true. Years. Oh, yeah, you're right. right, yeah. I mean, we all could get good at music. And then the standards for music would change. It'd be like, ugh, music's so good now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just like this noise crap. <laughs> How do you compete with a 120 year old? For you can't. Unless, like like always, uh, youth always wins, and there's you know there are people who are only into new new young bands, and then you'd be screwed from like the age of 40 until 160. <laughs> it's pretty much Terrible. music now too. You're screwed from the age of 40. <laughs> That's it. You don't exist in this society after the age of 40. Man, maybe in Spectrox Field Society, you don't really exist after 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 100. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's it. 100 is the new 40. Because it's like, oh, sorry, dude, you're not going to be, you know, you don't get hired when you're you're over 120 or something. Because like, yeah, you can only work for another 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Bridget, you were talking about Spectro- Spectrox before, and I think this is timely as well in terms of what else is happening in the 80s, in the early 80s at the time. Sure. And particularly the war on drugs, which starts in 1981 when Reagan ascends to the presidency and, mm. uh, you know, says outright that we're, we're not going to, to surrender to this and we're going to fight it. Mm. Nancy Reagan has the Say No to Drugs campaign Did she again. just say no? Does Nancy Reagan just say no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and we also have the creation of the Drug Enforcement Agency, which is like the U.S.'s arm against, uh, you know, smugglers, but also um, producers of, of drugs, both domestically and abroad. Um, and to the point where by 1986, drugs becomes like the number one issue in, in Times Magazine. And, you know, it's sort of seen as like this all-pervading evil force that's mm. out there. And I think that is alluded to here. It's 1983. So we're sort of halfway through that that, that time. Um, drugs is, uh, as a societal issue is coming through here in, uh, in the caves of Adrazani as well. 
And, you know, it sort of ties into that idea we were talking before of the sort of very rich and powerful people having their own self-interests that are often, you know, contradictory or, you know, conflicting on, on the surface of things. But it all sort of means that at the end of the day, it's going into their pockets. And that, that's a sort of probably, you know, a bit of cynicism again from Bob Holmes oh, about uh, yeah. the way in which business and, and government look after one another in this story. Mm. Mm, that's true. And that's... <laughs> relevant today really in some regards yeah period but when when i think of the 80s right i think (laughs) of like yuppies yeah yeah. and i think of those 80s movies where everyone's in like convertibles and big clothes and all like yeah boy don't worry it's the 80s (laughs) and they're like drinking champagne so that's i think the 80s is a really rich period of history right yeah so like it's interesting that they're they are obsessed with money like every every bad guy. True. And the scenes on Major sort of show that sort of 80s aesthetic, you know, that sort of those yeah. muted pastel tones and yeah. the big sort of shoulder pads. The big penthouse corner office. Yeah. The views of, a, of a, <laughs> Over the, the city. Over the city, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I think you're right there, Bridget, definitely. But maybe if you're working that hard, you get lonely. So, again, the central theme of friendship. Mm. That's, go. like, important when you're rich. <laughs> I guess that ponytail is quite 80s as well. It's 80s businessman type deal. That's great. Yeah, those big shoulders. Does and have shoulder pads yeah she does doesn't she she's a she's a power powerful lady <laughs> all we really have left to talk about is davison's doctor which and in yeah. this story which um and again he's a little bit sidelined by say what say what just loves to do uh <laughs> he's just sort of yeah like we said before he's just trying to do good in this horrible horrible environment and he's i feel like he he's more davison than ever before like He's really trying to be good at the st- very early on. You know, he has these lovely lines like "curiosity has always been my downfall." Well, that's <laughs> that's so Davison. And then, yeah, near the end, he gets he's so frustrated. You can see, and he says, "I keep telling the truth, and no, no one will ever listen to me." Yes, and that's 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 Davison. It's so Davison, right? It is. It's almost as though the universe is so corrupt, too corrupt that he can't sort of comprehend someone who's so honest and and pure a character. Yeah. Like, I love this doctor. I've mentioned before, he was my doctor when I was uh, a teenager and adolescent. I guess. And though I love all of the Doctors, I also love how each of the Doctors is different and contrasts mm. again against one another. Mm. Um, it's retrospectively applied in many ways, but it kind of does make sense and there's a sort of coherency about it. And so I think it's, I don't know, it's infinitely sad, but it's also unbelievably beautiful. Mm. It, Davison's Doctor comes into this absolutely corrupt, horrific, terrible situation, mm. and that's what undoes him. It, he dies in that way. That, you know, this fair-haired young doctor, this decent doctor who was too kind, almost too English Mm. for this universe, (laughs) had to die and and so did. And in the end, there was no other way that it could or should have ended for Davison's doctor. It's beautiful. He went out trying to save his friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. He he was worried. He was just terrified that he was going to fail. You know, Mm. when he says... That's so beautiful when he's he's lying on his back on that mountain and he says, <laughs> "Sorry, Perry." Just to, he just says it quietly. I love yeah, it's one of my favorite parts. It is so beautiful, perfect. and you know the the cliffhanger to uh, into part three, which we'll talk about later on, um, where he's intent on going back to Minor. The only reason yeah. he's doing it is to save Perry. Yeah. Um, that's you know far more even than his own preservation, self-preservation. It's about getting the bat's milk to give to Perry, mm. and it's wonderful also because you can see he's fighting off. The effects of I, the impending regeneration. I never noticed this before I until you, you told it to me. Because the, the generation effect that he sees as they're crashing the the, um, the visual ship, effect, yeah, um, is the same one that he sees when he regenerates. Yeah, it's that sort of that sort of mirrored uh, mirrored lighting thing. Uh, that's so cool. <laughs> so that means I never really realized this. That means he's from that moment of crashing the spaceship, he's about to regenerate, and mm-hmm. he holds the regeneration back for the whole time until he can save Perry. And that's why he immediately regenerates after he saved her. Hmm. And is that why he only gets enough 
vats milk for one person because no. it's like I'm already doomed, so oh. I'm not going to bother milking this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so sure because there's I don't know. Think it's particularly clear, but right before he goes, they go into the TARDIS. He drags Perry into the TARDIS. He drops the vial of the bats milk, mm. oh. and my inference is that a, oh. like more than half of it spills into it spills the ground. Out. And so what's left is only he says there's only enough. There was only enough left for you. Well, the reason is there for him to drop it. That's 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 such a good point. Yeah. yeah. But you think like okay, so he feels one vial up full of this bat nectar <laughs> and but you think that he just like when he was with the bat he would just be like get it in his mouth and then feel the, the rest spot. of it out on the <laughs> spot like cool. on the city like hey, I'm gonna get some that's not very dignified but you'd think like I've got to what if I don't make it back and what if I die before I get back true you think that would be smarter just to drink it right there good call and then feel this little vial up wow actually that. that is incredibly brilliant but He'd get back faster maybe doctor, that's maybe that's the doctor who's more concerned about Perry than himself Maybe that's the writer. He's like, we've got to kill him off. <laughs> we've got to kill him off. Put your lips on a bat nipple anyway. I don't even know because I, I don't know how beautiful that nipple looks. <laughs> yeah, because it was never shown. Don't picture it. <laughs> You're so right. Um, I just yeah, and I just love. He just seems to about halfway through. He's just like, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of dealing. With, it really feels to me like he's so tired of dealing mm. with evil. Yeah, and it starts with when he meets Jarrah's Jack. <laughs> I love the look on his face. Um. When he meets Jack for the first time, he has this look on his face where he's like, because oh, like, uh, Jack starts obviously starts up some monologue or whatever, and he's like, "Oh man!" He drops his another another, another theatrical <laughs> asshole who is gonna spiel to me like, "I care." Oh my god, I'm so sick of these guys. <laughs> um, and then it goes on and on, and he he just starts to make just sort of those little those flippant kind of jokes. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, he starts to joke jokes with Stotts. He just answers everything with a little quip. So, so this isn't new to Davison. I mean, he definitely has done it before. He has a sort of sake nature to yeah. him, which which doesn't come out too often. But it's it's Bob Holmes who's who's basically good enough a writer to actually put it into the script and for it to work. Um, but it's a shame that we didn't get a bit more of that. That mm. we didn't get more of this. Uh, I guess you know, kind and sweet doctor, but one who definitely has limits and is able to just sort of draw a line mm. in, in previous stories as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. That that that's it's such good acting by mm. Davison. There's, there's a number of those sort of grace notes where th- his head drops and he goes, "Oh my goodness, um, here we go another again." One, another weirdo. <laughs> oh yeah. My God. Or you know, going back to that point where he's fighting off the regeneration at the end of part three, it, it's not just the effect, the visual effect on mm. camera. It's also him, you know, sort of you know, looking like he's in incredible pain and just sort of, no, I'm going to fight this off through sheer willpower. I'm going to. I'm gonna, you know, get through this. A couple of I never noticed it, and it is brilliant. I love hmm. the idea that he's fighting it. And he hold, manages to hold it off until until he's done what he has to do. Yeah, because <laughs> when he regenerates, if he regenerates then and there, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be a, a, a good regeneration or a, one where he's like incapacitated for you know for days? Mm. He's gonna get so, that jacket. He don't know that. <laughs> and I I love how towards the end of the the story, his jackets. Soiled, like oh uh, right, yes. Totally so the cricketing outfit is is torn to shreds and yeah. covered in mud and it's great magma. I yeah, magma. <laughs> I just love how it looks and I love the idea of that. Like he's it's fine because he's always so crisp and clean, yeah, uh, and composed. And yeah. then right at the end, he is covered in mud and his yeah, he's like you said, he's torn to shreds. It's, it's just, a beautiful metaphor, isn't it, for you know this pure doctor entering this very corrupt and impure world. Yeah, and he's yeah. soiled by it, and it takes him, it tears him apart, like it, yeah. it finishes him. Yeah, um, and it's such a weird. It is a weird ending for Doctor Who. I noticed that, like, 
there's there's no note of hope in the society that he leaves behind at no. the end. Usually they're like, thanks, Doctor. We're going to rebuild society. See you later. <laughs> and he's like, hey, see you guys. But this time, Kraut Dimon just takes over. and Everyone it, else is dead. Yeah. Every, oh, my God. Yeah. Everyone's dead. But it, the implication, I think, from Kraut Dimon taking over, because she just seems kind of, she's so compelling and charming. <laughs> but she seems like she's just going to keep going to carry on. Um, doing evil like in Morgus's stead no I don't think she'll do you don't evil. think she's going to be a profiteer like Morgus no nah, because she's in with that you know the president dude who was see, you know he was sling through his his crap I guess she doesn't want to follow the evil part it just it just seems like when he, when he leaves this time um, that society is just as corrupt and, and screwed up as it was before maybe yeah. you're taking Morgus out of the equation and Jack means that everyone just gets Spectrox now and everything's fine and everyone's going to be happy. Possibly, but I, I think with the president gone and Barbara Kinghorn sitting behind that desk, nothing's going to change. Because it seems like Morgus is going to assume, not the not the office of the president, but like, you know, he's going to sort of, you know, he'll probably just install a puppet or something like that. Mm. So maybe Kraut Timmons going to do that too. And maybe, so maybe this time, very unlike Doctor Who, Nothing has changed nothing has after changed. he's left. It might be, might be worse. Maybe it's chaos, you know, maybe because of the death of the president and yeah. all this other stuff. But I guess it's just one planet in a very vast universe. Yeah. <laughs> and so that reality doesn't really affect other realities so much. No, but, but he's left the behind. The world is so infinite and huge. It's almost irrelevant. It is, it is a pretty cynical way, though, of, of sort of ending a story. Usually there is a glimmer of hope or some That's sort of true. redemption in Doctor Who. But because it feels like it's maybe the, one of the only times it ever happens, I yeah. think it's amazing. And it's like he, this Doctor is saying... Uh, this is too messed up. I can't save this. I can't save this society, and I can't do good here at the end because it's killed me. And you know what? I'm out. Sorry, you guys are on your own. Uh, he, he just gives up, and he's like, "I'm just going to save my friend and mm. get Perry into the TARDIS, and we're going to leave." It's kind of what happens. Like you know, in a lot of Doctor Who, Doctor Who stories, the companion's like, "Can we just go back to the TARDIS now? Can we please just go back to the TARDIS?" And, and you know, in your yeah. heart, you're like, "If I was there, I would be saying that too. Let's get the hell back into the TARDIS and get the hell out of here, just man." Go to that pleasure planet. Yeah, dude. Get some massages. <laughs> the massage planet. Um, but um. At this time, basically, I know it's the end of the four-episode story, but, I mean, he hasn't solved or fixed anything. He's essentially saying, yeah, let's get back in the TARDIS and get out of here because this is too heavy. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, but he hasn't, he hasn't fixed anything, but us, the audience, have learnt about friendship, friendship? and about <laughs> how scary money is yeah. if you have a lot of it and you're corrupt. <laughs> I'm going to go with Bridget on this because it sort of coincides with what we were saying about Earthshock. And I know that you sort of felt when that argument, the cyber leader wins. Sure. But I think the Doctor has a point that there are finer things that can't be reduced to zeros and ones yeah. uh, or money, uh, profit and loss. And, yeah, I think this, there's a similar sort of takeaway for me with Caves of Androzani too. You've got, you've got war, you've got profiteering, you've got the gun runners, you've got the government. You've got people hating their jobs or people loving their jobs. You've got all this, all this stuff mostly happening. Mostly hating. Yeah, mostly. But the, yeah, the doctor's just basically saying friendship is more important than all of these things. And yeah. I will die. Well, in that world, that's all you really got, right? Because it's a pretty bleak world. Mm. I mean, we only see, you know, the, the bad, mining the side. company side. What if that planet's actually really good? Maybe land life on Androzani Major is awesome. Maybe everyone out in that city is just partying nonstop. Massaging and <laughs> just yeah. chilling in like pastel clothes is androzani the major the, the massage planet maybe maybe that's the one they were trying to get to the whole right? time they're right on holiday and they just want spectrox so they can massage for extra time it just makes me wonder though if the other planet is still the planet of the madman 
<laughs> what, what must it really yeah. be like on major after yeah. all? Yeah, oh my god. That's true. <laughs> That's so true. I am mad. They're just like, they're just, like just don't go in the caves, dudes. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. It's great, but. In the tourist guide? Underneath. Yeah. <laughs> in the tourist guide? There is a man. man. Avoid the caves. There's a crazy guy. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera type dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, ne- he's never playing at a piano, is he? He's never, he's never, he just needs a, a sad song. Like a massive church organ? Yeah, a huge church organ. <laughs> like that synth plant guy? <laughs> Harrison Chase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, he's, there's no organ. He's, only, he's just got a bunch of machines that make androids who are his only friends. <laughs> yeah. I know, but he could make some kind of android music, maybe, and then he'd get really good at it at 160 years Old. It's weird that he can make such lifelike androids who can impersonate people, but he the androids that he hangs out with are just the regular like base model. He doesn't make any like body androids. That's true, no human head on it. Yeah. Make yeah. a make a body android. Right? Problem solved, Jack. <laughs> make sort of, your own friends. Make a beautiful make, make your a own beautiful friends. <laughs> you know he's obsessed with beauty. Yeah. Uh, Perry, he's gotta have Perry. Oh, hang make on. Your, make your want, own I don't want to go down. Oh, this I don't road. I just meant something to look at. Oh god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, make a wall. Oh, <laughs> hey, look, if it saves Perry from being groped and manhandled by all these dudes, then uh, he's so talented. Oh, he could do so much. If he didn't have that, like, drive for revenge, you know, like. All right, Bridget, we're near the end. Will you indulge us and in our cheese and join us for a round of crackers and clangers? (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Okay, so the first cliffhanger. The Doctor and Perry are sentenced to death under the Red Shroud and, are seem- and seemingly face their deaths by machine gun firing squad in the caves of Andrazani. Mm. Cracker. Yeah. Total cracker. Like, it- I was like, what? That just happened? Yeah, I was like, what are they going to... How are they going to... Unless those uh, are blanks, like, how are they going to get out? Or someone switched the bullets for blanks? I was like, how are they going to do this? <laughs> and yeah, those Red Shrouds are really creepy. and Yeah, aren't they? It's, yeah. it's quite an image, isn't it? But, uh, it's pretty good. I, I, I really love the way in which... Um, it sort of makes sense of a beautiful montage that Harper puts together mm. where Jack is maniacally laughing in his caves yeah. and, you know, you see the little, the very 1980s camera lens, you know, pop out of a... Yeah, the massive <laughs> lens. How did anyone miss that? <laughs> That's terrible. And he's, kick, you know, sort of cackling away to himself, obviously because he's, gonna, he's creating these androids that will take the place of, of Perry and the Doctor. And that's that's how that sort of is explained. But yeah, I think it's a it's a cracker, and it pays off because we see that montage and we think this guy's evil. We have no idea what he's doing. It's like, oh, that's what he was doing. That's quite good. Yeah, it is quite good. Yeah, I forgot. I totally forgot about that about the 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 uh, Android bait and switch. I totally forgot about it. I was yeah. totally blown away by that. <laughs> it was great. Total cracker. Total cracker. Okay, one thing that bothers me though, and I'm not sure whether it's to do with the fact that videotape back in the 80s was just so cheap and nasty but you notice that when the guns are fired the there's lines that appear on the videotape it's almost as yeah. though the, the sound is so great that it distorts the video the videos <laughs> something like that like it's too much information or too much maybe the flash is too the flash from the muzzles are too bright Who on the knows? Other sound. Yeah. but yeah it always always a bit bothered me anyway <laughs> part two taken hostage by stots and the gun runners the doctor is taken back into the caves of Andrazani and is menaced the magma beast. <laughs> oh yeah, the magma cliffhanger. <laughs> magma beast cliffhanger. Yeah. This is one of the clangiest yeah. clangers <laughs> we've ever had, right? Yeah, he's sort of hiding behind a rock as the magma beast roars and he's oh, it's just not shot particularly well. It's he's on his back legs. Why is he standing it's upright? Shot too, it's shot too clearly. They show the mm. whole creature. You know, they, they've, done, they've done it before so many times where they show parts of the creature That's and then you, 
I mean, but still, uh, it's a. I guess it's a monster reveal, but it's like we didn't know it was there before, and they haven't. They, does anyone mention it before? It yeah, occurs? there's there's a soldier that gets killed in part one, and then we oh, kind of yeah. we kind of forget about it for a bit because it's crap. Yeah, and I'm, I wonder whether it's just J and T saying we must have a monster just for the sake of it again. Was there meant to be more, and they cut it or something? They do have a monster, that creepy caveman yeah. guy. There are so yeah, many monsters, exactly, right? Jack and Morgus. They're both monsters. Rapist <laughs> is a massive monster. Yeah, definitely. The scariest of all monsters. <laughs> Clang. Yeah, Clang. definitely. All right, so part three then. With Perry dying in the caverns of the madman, the doctor holds at bay the poison coursing through his system and very likely his own impending death and subsequent regeneration. He commandeers Stotz's shuttlecraft now en route to Major, plunging it back towards Minor at what appears to be terminal velocity. Yeah. Oh, man. So great. <laughs> this is a definite cracker for me. It might even be the cracker of the story for me. Just cause mm. I, well, now that I've learned that he's holding back that regeneration, it's just so great. But like even, and I know it's just a paper mache planet that they're zooming in on, but it looks so, <laughs> it's so fast. And um, he looks scared. Like yeah. he look, and But the where that sort of little chat that he has with um, Stotts through the hole, mm-hmm. he calls him Stotsy. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And then... Yeah, he's like, look, I'm going to die anyway. Uh, I'm going to crash nothing this thing. to lose. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's beautifully acted. The camera work is really great. You see the wobble as the sort of craft is yeah. entering, the, <laughs> re-entering the atmosphere and the sort of velocity around it. Um, Davison's, you know, starting to shout and yep. like, oh, it's just gorgeous. They, they shoot over uh, Stotz's shoulder through the hole. Yeah, that, that burns him as he tries to reach through. Yeah, so that's such a cool shot. And um. Yeah, you really feel the doctor's desperation, and it's great. He just wants to get back and save, save Perry. his friend. It's, it's so good. It's great. I love it. Cracker. Oh, cracker. Definitely cracker. Okay, and now part four. Having dropped the vial of milk of the queen bat such that there is only enough for, left for Perry, just before getting back into the TARDIS, uh, the fifth doctor finally succumbs to the effects of Spectrox toxemia. His current life flashes before him, as we see again the visual effect we saw at the end of part three. And from amidst the heart of the regenerative storm emerges a new man, someone with a very different personality. (laughs) Change, my dear. And it seems not a moment too soon. Uh, It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a regeneration, man. It's, 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 it wants to be a cracker. I think it's a cracker. I I don't know about the swirl of like previous companions thing. Oh, really? I don't know. I've never really liked that that much. I don't know (laughs) know if it's necessary, but like, uh, I just love how he says, it's time to say goodbye. (laughs) So <laughs> uh, yeah, he says goodbye to Perry, and it's it's and she's just kind of waking up, and she doesn't know what's going on. Do you know what would have been better? She he would be like, "All right, I'm just going to change form. Bye." <laughs> I'll explain it before it happens. Yeah, yeah they never do that. Just be like, "Bye." <laughs> You're about to meet some other guy. Yeah, <laughs> he may not Don't be nice be to you. It's still me, but it's kind of not. <laughs> Protect your neck. They kind of do that with the Eccleston regeneration, don't they? But even then, um, Rose's character doesn't quite twig as to what on earth is going on yeah. and why it's mm. happened. Just some other dude. Maybe you can't really, you know, expect a, a human character to accept or you know anticipate that. Yeah, my entire body's going to change and I'm going to look mm. like someone else after a you know a blinding flash of light. <laughs> I love. Yeah. I always love. I, I always love seeing the, the new the next Doctor in the previous Doctor's outfit. Yeah, it always looks cool to me. I don't know. Yeah. Why. I, I I agree. And you know, this is a really good introduction to um, Colin Baker. I mean, it promised so much. And I think, mm. okay, so he's definitely a little bit nastier than the previous Doctor. That's okay. He's a bit more arrogant. Let's see how yeah. this is going to go. Immediately. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I enjoyed that. You know, the, the 
um, three eyes uh, in, in yeah. one breath makes you sound a rather <laughs> egotistical young lady. It's like, whoa, that is not the doctor that's that we just saw. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing he says to Perry is a burn. It's pretty great. I love it. Yeah. Um, and I, lo- I do kind of, I know it's a bit cornball, but doesn't he turn to camera and deliver the last line to camera? And it he seems does. It's, yeah. so, it's just so Baker. He's like, and it seems not a moment too soon. It is. It's, so it's wonderful. But it's also done at like two minutes to 10. And, you, oh. know, you know, obviously on the end of the last day. So they had literally no time. Oh, wow. And, Colin Baker, I think, actually nails that delivery. I yeah. love it. But he's he's on record as saying he's quite upset because when he's got when he looks to camera, there's a moment where he blinks just as delivering it, oh. and he wishes that he hadn't. Oh. And I didn't really pick up on it until I saw it. But even then, I don't think that takes away from just like this is a really cool doctor like reveal. If great you like. actor, yeah. great actor delivering some some great lines. <laughs> yeah. he's just really a little. He plays it. It's a little corn, but it's just I yeah. love it. It's really good. Yeah, I think so too. Definite cracker. Mm. cracker. Cracker. All right, lovely, cool. Okay, here we are again at that point where we're going to share the love. This time with the Metabolist Two podcast. Ben and David, if you haven't checked them out, go uh, seek them out on Twitter at Metabolist Two. It's a numeric two, um, and yeah, it's a it's a really fun podcast. Uh, looking back at um, both classic and new Doctor Who, the Metabolist Two podcast. Awesome. And we've got another pretty special share the love this time. We wanted to kind of draw your attention to something that Steve found this week. Oh, they, they, these these guys are amazing. Uh, they're called the Sever Team after the tribe that Leela comes from <laughs> in, the, in the face of evil. They're a, uh, they're a duo out of Minneapolis, I believe. Mm-hmm. And what they've done is to put together a rock opera concept album based on the caves of Andrazani. It is absolutely incredible. It's a whole album based on Andrazani and it's sort of like this amazing 80s sort of, I don't want to reduce it, but it's sort of 80s synth pop kind of uh, real smooth. Yeah. It's really cool. It's beautiful and you have to go check out their website. It's uh, theseverteam.com um, and not least because there's some amazing 80s graphics yeah, uh, and, and style there. <laughs> it looks so good. But also you can actually buy the album for a nominal fee, which whatever you whatever you like, just um, uh, basically um, that money will go to Medicine Sans Frontier. So if anyone would like to, to yeah. support that, you're not just supporting a, a wonderful creative Doctor Who project, but also an incredibly worthy cause. Uh, and we'll probably close the show with a song from them with yes. their permission and we'll... And we'll make a, a donation to MSF on their behalf. Thank you very much, the server team, for your permission. Oh, so I think we've come to the end. Um, we just want to say a, a big thank you, as always, to uh, the invaluable Bridget. No worries, no nurries. <laughs> thanks, thanks, so, Bridget. Thanks so much for that joining us. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was great fun. Always appreciate you having you on. It was yeah. fun to watch it with you as well, because like, often we try and watch it together with Steve and, and Bridget. When we I guess it's different when you watch it through the eyes of someone who's never seen it. Mm. I'm exactly. like, whoa. You know, like I get all the... The, the excitement for the first time around, you know? <laughs> I find I learn a lot as well. Like it, it sort of makes me put aside, you know, 25 plus yeah. years of fandom to sort of say, oh, hang on a second. Maybe this is what it looks like to, to non-Doctor Who eyes. It's nice mm. to see it through your eyes. It's like a kind of for the first time. Yeah. yeah it's really fun. So, thank so. you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And <laughs> uh, So we're talking about next time. What are we, uh, what are we dealing with? Ah, it's the end, but the moment is prepared for. Yeah. It's going to be Christopher H. Bidmead's end of season 18, Tom Baker regenerative story. One of the best. I think it's one of my favorite of all so time. So wonderful. So, so beautifully atmospheric. It's Legopolis. And uh, when we're going to have a very special guest come and join us, someone who was there with us at the start and who shall return to mm, join us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> More on that next time. <laughs> you can buy the DVD of Caves of Androzani from BBC Online, or you can buy and download the episodes from iTunes. 
You can follow New To Who on Twitter at New To Who Podcast and also Facebook or even email us at New To Who Podcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at newtowho.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like clicking subscribe or leaving a nice review, please do so, as these things are a wonderful help. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Bridget. I'm Dan. And I'm Stephen. Thanks. Be seeing you. Peace out.